Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, sir. It's uh, I greet you from the pit of despair while I'm I'm wallowing around in all of my technical troubles. <laughs> I heard you. So we're going to talk about that coming up later in the show. What? Where do you go, either at work or at home, when you need help and you're stuck on something? You're exploring a new technology. Steve and I are going to discuss that. We're going to get into your feedback. All of it happens. First, we'll start with an email from Baku. Actually, I take that back. First, we're going to go to the phones at 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Kevin joins us from Illinois. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. You'll have to, uh, I apologize, the button takes a little longer to click when I'm not in the studio. Now you're on the Ask Noah Show. Welcome in, sir. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Hey, uh, appreciate your show, guys. Um, for, I've got two questions. Um, one, I'm looking for uh, an outdoor speaker that I can mount, um, you know, light bulbs in a, in a parking lot and stream okay. audio to it. I was thinking, like, you know, RTP over Wi-Fi or something along those lines. I was wondering if you guys had any uh, any thoughts on that. Sure. Um, so, Steve, have you done anything with outdoor speakers? Uh, actually, I started looking at the outdoor speakers that kind of look like rocks because when we were putting up the... When we're going to go with the permanent um, LED strips on the porch for you know various things, we want to play some music out there. So I started looking into that, but um, I haven't. I would run a wire, but that's just because of where they are and my propensity to not like wireless things. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna echo what you're saying. I also would run a wire. So he, here's here's what you could do. Okay, there are two speakers that are really, really popular for outdoor use. One is the Electro Voice Evit, and this is it's kind of an expensive speaker. They're like three sixty nine, but if you go to like uh, a lot of gas stations, will have these out by the pumps, and they essentially look like a little oval, and they'll be pointed down. And so I'll put a link for you in the show notes. It's a four inch speaker, and. It is, these are, so this is a passive speaker. So you would run just a pair of speaker wire out to the speaker. Then you would put a, an amplifier and a box inside of your home or your garage or something like that. What that's going to allow you to do is it's going to allow you, Kevin, to feed it with whatever device you want. And then when that device, not if you notice, I said, when that device becomes outdated, you can, you can swap it. And so you're not married to one device. You don't have to go rewire your speaker. Right. Yeah, I, I hear you on the wire. Um, the reason I was thinking wireless is this is a you know church parking lot. The poles are are set, wires are run, and and uh, I'm not sure what it would take to get more. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I, I I hear you on the reliability and all that. What's the purpose yeah, of so the if, speakers in the parking lot? Like, what are you trying to achieve? I'm sorry. What are you trying uh, to well, achieve with the speakers in the parking lot? Yeah, you know, um, possibly like streaming the service. Um, out to the parking lot, just as people are arriving, you know, there's music or maybe the, the live service or something along those lines. How big are you talking about for an area? Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how far out they want to go. From the building, it's probably 100 feet, maybe, something like that. And how big Could is a person- the parking lot area? I'm sorry, how big of an area do you want to hear the speaker? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 feet away from the speaker, I would guess. Circumference. Could a person could a person mount the speaker to the outside of the of the like of the church itself so that this, the you know, like you could run the wire in Right. Um, that, that would, would that be, be a possibility po- for sure. Okay. So I, I, so there's a couple things that come to mind. So I'm sure somewhere out there exists a wireless speaker that you can stream RTP audio to. I, I don't know of that for sure, so I'll start with what I know for sure. You could use something like Volumio. Volumio will allow you to stream yeah. to it either over RTP 
directly to the box, or you can actually set up uh, ULSA to, 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 to play out to it and, and have it as an ULSA source. Um, so that might be a really flexible way for you to get audio to the Volumio box, then Volumio box to amp, amp out to the speaker. If you find yourself in the boat of there's no possible way to get uh, a wire out to where the speaker is, it's just going to have to be wireless. Your best case scenario, I think you're dealing with a power situation because you're either going to build something like a little solar panel with a little battery and have it charge up. Or you're going to have to go and recharge the speaker all the time. I'm not sure how you get power out there if well, if you yeah, can't run I mean, wires. They're, they're light poles. Yeah, they're light poles, so they've, they've got power. I don't know how hard it would be to get you know the power to the wherever they want to mount the, the speaker on the pole. But but in theory, it's it's you know inches away. Um, I'm not sure how practical it is to you know get it get it. But but yeah, I, I certainly don't want batteries. <laughs> Just, just throwing an idea against the wall, maybe something sticks here, right? If you were to take like an outdoor enclosure, okay, like a plastic weather-sealed outdoor enclosure, and place that on the light pole, place your speaker there, put the little amplifier in there, put whatever your source is, volumeo, whatever it is, you could potentially put like a little nano beam and come back to the church, yeah. mount a nano beam on the church, and link it that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that, that actually... It, that that probably is is the most likely wireless solution, honest, honestly, just from what I've seen. Because you know, there's, yeah. there's Bluetooth speakers all over the place, but I haven't found much else. So yeah, that's a good point. Okay. You I said will, you had two uh, questions. I will yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Second one is um, so we've got uh, Unify, the same same location, the church. Uh, we've got a couple of Unify switches. Um, we kind of started down that road a while back. I, I now um, am looking for a switch that I can put both uh, NDI and Dante through reliably. I'm wondering if what Ooh. your thoughts are on, on uh, Unify in that in that situation. That's a really great question. Okay, so a couple of things. When you get into audio over IP, um, the first things the first thing is companies evaluate switches. So these companies that make audio IP equipment, they bring the switches into their lab and they test them and see how it works with their audio over IP gear. What we are told as installers of a lot of the audio over IP gear is the only switches that live up to their white paper for what they can actually perform and do is Cisco and everything else, yeah. even HP. And so our general deployment is HP or Unify, uh, depending on what the customer's budget is. And we don't use either of, well, that's not entirely true. I try to stay away from HP or Unify when I'm doing audio over IP. So there are two series that I, I gravitate towards. In all fairness to Netgear, they make a switch specifically designed for audio over IP that's very, very popular in houses of worship. Now, Steve has an experience with a Netgear switch that has kept me from ever purchasing one. <laughs> yeah uh so, in where it just i mean go ahead oh sorry um i was just gonna say yeah i i have a 10 gigabit switch from netgear that it will just fill up its state table from time to time and bring itself down and anything that's attached to it and so it just needs to be power cycled and it's a known it's a known issue when i i engage support and so yeah i put it on a smart plug so that i could just toggle it on and off remotely put the smart plug on a completely different network, but uh, that'll probably be the last net gear that I'll buy for a while. Things you're looking for in a switch. If you're doing audio over IP and NDI, you're looking for IGMP snooping. You're looking for QoS. Um, if you're going to do multi, so Don with Dante, you have Dante primary, Dante secondary. So you want a managed switch for sure so that you can do, well, actually I guess you right. need a managed switch to do IGMP, uh, but you'd want, to have a managed switch so that you can carry both VLANs, both primary and secondary. And I've seen a lot of installations where they'll physically break it up per switch. So what I mean by that is instead of having a switch that carries, let's say, VLAN 20, VLAN 30, 20 is your primary, 30 is your secondary. Instead of doing that, they'll just have two managed switches, both of them dub switches. One is the Dante primary switch, one is the Dante secondary switch, and they carry the audio over IP over both one. The argument behind that, not that I agree with it, but the argument behind that is you have complete redundancy because you have two physical links from every switch to every other switch. And so each 
path has a, a pure network link. Now, what I have submitted back to the audio over IP folks and, and never really got a great answer for them is in networking, we come up with redundant links all the time and carry multiple VLANs over redundant links. So that's absolutely a function of the switch. And I've seen it configured both ways and I've seen it work both ways. But I will get you a link to the Cisco SG series, which is the budget series for the Cisco switch for Cisco switches. And then the Cisco 3560 and 3750s are both switches that are used widely for audio over IP and NDI uh, together. And there's even a little guide that will walk you through how to configure them uh, for audio over IP. So I'll include all of that in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Anything else we can help with? Uh, not tonight. Thanks a lot. All right. We appreciate your calls. 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Baku writes in and he says, hello, gentlemen. I'll start with a suggestion. 6 p.m. Central doesn't translate well to the audience outside of North America. Wouldn't it be nice if you guys were able to give the show time in UTC besides Central time? A few days back, a friend asked me for a suggestion of enabling comments or analytics on his personal website. My recommendation to him was Cactus Comments for commenting systems and Goat Counter for web analytics. Both of them are open source. Obviously, links for them for the interested folks. It links to cactus.chat and goatcounter.com. Noah, you are a fan of Markdown, right? Correct, sir. There are many good Markdown editors out there, but only a few can handle Candle to Zettler. It's a cross-platform application with many unique features. I highly encourage you to give a look at Zettler. I think you'll like this one. And then it links to Zettler.com. Before I get on to the rest of his comments, Steve, I got to ask, have you ever used Zettler? And if so, what is it and do you like it? I have not used it, so I'm not really sure. I haven't either, but I will check it out. You're right. I use Markdown from everything from my professional documentation at work to show notes for my show on KNOX to show notes that you hear here on Ask Noah. Use it up and down all over the place. Heck, my wife and I use it just for our budgeting. Our budget is a gigantic Markdown document. Uh, Baku's final question. Finally, do you guys have a formula for calculating the required bandwidth for an internet connection? Let's say, for example, that your friend is planning on setting up an internet connection. He owns two smart TVs, four smartphones, three personal computers, and as internet-consuming devices. How would you calculate the required bandwidth for hassle and stutter-free experience? I know it kind of depends on the user scenario, but let's assume here that your friend is an average guy and that his family will consume the internet the way the average folks do. Watch and listen to streaming media, watch YouTube videos, play online games, browse the internet, make audio calls, etc., etc., Keep up the good work, Baku. Um, so that's a really great question. Steve, have you ever ca- done bandwidth calculations for a client or for your own home? Not really. I mean, I, I kind of do the stick the finger in the air. This is about correct because honestly, there's all kinds of stuff that goes into this. You can make a, a 50 meg down internet connection work perfectly fine. I, I had 25 meg for years and then I bumped up to 50 megs for a couple of years on DSL. And, you know, between us at our house, that was perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. So it really, and we're typical ish users for that, for that uh, level of thing. It depends on people mm-hmm. getting on at the same time and uh, whether or not you're, you're enabling QoS and things like that. Yeah, very good. So the only time I've ever really been engaged to look at internet connections is in, is in three scenarios. One is in broadcasting, because obviously when studios are connected over the internet, they want to know how many simultaneous connections they can have. And for that, we use the metric of 2.5 megs for a bi- for a single uncompressed audio stream. If we're talking video, we typically budget 10 to 15 megs for a uh, for for the video side. And then for each channel of video or each channel of audio, or if we go bi-directional, then we start to take that into account with up and down. A general rule of thumb, and this goes for most things, UPSs, internet connections, buying computers, life, you know, uh, life cycles of things. 
I try to stay under the 50% mark. That's what I consider zero. And it gives me a safety factor of two. So if I look and so we'll typically use something like Wazoo or Libra NMS to track this for a client and look at what are they using on a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis? And then we're able to look and say, yeah, was Susie's RDP connection really slow? Because we saw that your internet connection was 50 megs and you were using, you know, that connection was like pegged at 49 for like three hours today. So maybe we want to reevaluate that. And it's funny, it comes, it's funny, it comes up in the weirdest circumstances. Like you would think that it would be a more planned thing and that it would, or excuse me, you would think it would be a more unplanned thing that you would just bump into it. But really where stuff like that comes up the most often is we set up something like a backup server and somebody fat fingers and forgets to put the rate limit on our sync and it tries to sync the, you know, the 10 terabytes of data and all of a sudden bad things happen. So we come across it in those kinds of circumstances. So I've done some testing. Um, again, that 50% rule, you won't find that in a book somewhere. You, It's not any sort of ratified standard. It, it's, it's, it is Steve's thumb in the air with a little bit of marketing on top of it so that I can tell a client that we're doing something technical and not just, eh, that's about right. But how I arrive at that 50% is just my thumb in the air. I've, it's worked fine for me. Like Steve, I have the bottom tier internet connection, the cheapest thing I can get from my ISP. And they actually recently doubled it for free because they, it's just what my ISP does. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, I think that's where I would start in the way of how do you evaluate bandwidth uh, for an internet connection? Again, your thoughts, your calls are welcome. Seven or eight fifty five four fifty Noah. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. We'll head to the Linux Newswire newsroom. Get the latest from JT. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the week in review with JT. Linux security researcher Jason Donafeld has discovered that the Linux kernel has been forcing different behavior for processes starting with an X. Linux has gained the ability to repair XFAT drives. At Google AI's event in New York City, Google research intern Jackie Liang and robotics research scientist Andy Zeng proposed the notion of letting robotic systems effectively write their own code. They propose code as policies to allow robots to write their own code. Google is releasing open source versions of that code on GitHub. In other release news, Nitrix 2.5 has been released. The first Arch Linux ISO release powered by the Linux 6.0 kernel is now available for download. Based on Ubuntu, Remnux has launched a new virtual appliance and container called Remnux, which is a toolkit for reverse engineering and analyzing malicious software. Microsoft has released a large update to their CBL Mariner Linux distribution. LibreOffice 7.3 gets its last maintenance update, and users are urged to upgrade to 7.4. Ardor 7.1 has been released. And the LXQT team has released version 1.2 with initial Wayland support and several other improvements. Thank you, JT. Uh, we appreciate his newscast. You'll hear those up roughly around the middle of the show. Our picks this week, Reminix. Reminix is a free community distribution that contains almost everything you need to easily perform malware and other analysis. And so this is a toolkit designed for reverse engineering malware to perform analysis. Now, when I first came across this, my very first thought was like, well, what makes this different than like Kali Linux security you know, distribution? And so far as I understand it, the difference here is this is specifically targeting malware and specifically allowing you to understand the mechanisms by which malware operate. And so I bring it to your attention for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's cool. If you're wanting to dig into the security aspects or kind of learn a little bit, poke around the hood, that might be something really cool. But I also think it could be a potentially really useful tool for administrators or consultants who are working in in a capacity in which they have to explain the technical things that are happening underneath the hood to somebody else. And I think tools like this allow you to do that. So the distro is called, I I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Reminix, R-E-M-N-U-X, free community distribution that contains almost everything you need to easily perform malware and other analysis. We'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Second pick. Etsy keeper. Now, Steve, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because I have to I have to acknowledge I'm not quite sold on this one. 
Okay. The idea here is it hooks into the package manager like apt and automatically commits changes made to slash Etsy during the package upgrade. And then it tracks the meta metadata and get, uh, which doesn't normally support. So this is important because it allows you to essentially back up the contents of Etsy with permissions intact for things like Etsy slash shadow. My critique of this at face value anyway, is what happens when I change distros? Because slash Etsy can vary quite a bit depending on what distro you're on and what specifically you're trying to do with the distro. So Steve, do you, I mean, am, am I off base to say that this is probably not the most useful thing? I was trying to figure out what use case you might have for something like this as a, hmm. I guess I could see it if you were tinkering around with your base operating system and you know you wanted to make changes or see how the system was changing over time you could use this for educational purposes but there is very little value to restoring slash etc um, on top of a new install because all kinds of things change like when for example you update ssh it will often replace files in there based on whatever updates it needs to do so maybe for educational purposes. I'm not exactly sure why I would do this. Yeah, I, I think the idea here is for you to restore your machine and the idea is that Etsy would come back. But as you pointed out, A, it unless you're unless this is constantly keeping track and keeping it up to date, which to be fair is kind of how they bill it. But restoring Etsy alone isn't going to do a whole lot for me, right? Because, I mean, I did all the applications and all of their configuration. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the system that would have to come back for this to be useful. And quite honestly, slash Etsy might be the last directory that I have really important stuff that I want to make sure that's usually specific to that particular machine, that particular install. And once I start treating my machines like, like cattle and they're not my personal pets, I don't care what's in Etsy. I'm going to blow it away and I'm going to set it back up the way I wanted it at the time that I wanted it, as opposed to however it was set up originally. So there is a, sorry, go ahead. Good. I was just going to say, I can see, uh, I can see why you would want to do something like this. Maybe if you were trying to track down what broke my system, but as okay. a, like, yeah. I'm going to replace everything. Hmm. Not so much. Signal has rolled out what they're calling Story. So this is the end-to-end -end encrypted messaging app uh, that you're familiar with. You've heard about it. It's open source. It is open in nature in that the source code is open and anybody technically can write other clients, but oftentimes it isn't uh, very welcomed. So they're rolling out a new feature called Stories. It's available to all users on Android and iOS, and the company announced this on Monday. So the official launch comes a couple of weeks after the company first began beta testing the feature with select users. Now, Signal plans to release its Stories uh, feature on the desktop sometime soon. Right there, I want to point something out. So... I have been somewhat critical of Signal, not because I don't think there is incredible security behind it, not because I don't think it's a great product, and not because I don't think it's a great de facto choice if you're just looking for a secure open source messenger to be able to communicate securely with journalists or family or friends inside or outside of a country, or maybe where you're being persecuted. I think it does all of those things. Where I think Signal has historically fallen down is in a couple of categories. So first, I am I become a little concerned that Signal falls down in the way of you can't write your own client. They're very specific on who uses the who can write the client. And they claim that that's for security, which I can buy to a certain extent, but it kind of takes away from the advantage of being open source, does it not? Second concern that I have and you see it here in their announcement Signal plans to release Stories feature on desktop soon, so they're primarily focusing towards the mobile market, and the desktop is very much a second-class citizen. Now, that's fine because the vast majority of people are honestly probably using this messaging application on their phone, but I think it takes a bit away from the open-source Linux enthusiast standpoint when you're tied to a phone because phones are tied to SIM cards. SIM cards are tied to carriers, and with SIM cards, carriers, and phones comes a whole bunch of tracking whether you want it or not. Now, this might be good in the way of a spam avoidance uh, 
you know, aspect, but it's not really all that great from a privacy aspect. And so I have concerns there. The fact that you couldn't until very recently, in fact, I'm not even sure if this is possible now, use Signal without having a, a phone number, again, kind of speaks to this idea of privacy. Now, Signal users have the option to choose who can see their stories by navigating to their settings. And from there, you can choose to share your stories with everyone in your phone's contact list who uses Signal, anybody that you've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with in Signal, or anyone whose message request you've accepted. You also have the option to manually hide your story from specific people if you'd rather choose who to share your stories with in a smaller subset of people. You can create a custom story. In addition, you have the option to share stories to group chats. So it seems to me that they are getting to a point where they want to use this almost like a social media platform. And indeed, that's what you're seeing from a lot of messaging platforms. They're doing that. Now, Steve, I'll ask you, you were a Signal user when they started rolling back the SMS feature that they had before where you could use Signal as your native SMS app. It wasn't sending SMS through Signal. It was sending it through your phone's carrier service, but you were using the Signal app to compose and read those messages, meaning you had one central place to open a messaging app and get both your Signal messages as well as SMS. Now that has changed. They took away that feature, citing that people shouldn't be using SMS. It's not encrypted. It's not secure. It's not the future, all of the things, but it nonetheless makes it less useful to somebody who a few days ago had one messaging app. Now you have to go to multiple. So my question, how has that worked? How has that worked out? Have you pulled back from signal and does this stories feature, you know, either bring you back and say that would be a really cool thing or that's exactly the kind of stuff I don't care about. Uh, so right now I still have an updated signal. So I'm still running the version that can do SMS. So I'm going to ride that train until it either auto updates and stops working or, you know, I have I have little care at this point for um, making sure I'm on the leading edge for for the signal application. So uh, I'm I'm disappointed in in general. I'm also probably not going to create a story or do any of that sort of stuff that that's just not the way that I interact with the world. I don't either. And I, if I was going to publish, you know, stories to me or that kind of functionality seems like the kind of thing that you, where you want to publish something, you want the world to see something, right? You publish it to Facebook, you put it on Twitter, this kind of thing. And when I start thinking about that, the there's privacy in my mind's eye is a light switch. It's either on or off. I don't buy into this idea of, I've shared it with a select group of people. And the reason I don't buy into that is because it's just too easy for somebody to take a screenshot and then share it outside that group of people, thereby eliminating this idea that only a certain amount of people had access to this information or this post. So I explain that or say that to say that I probably wouldn't put anything out on the internet unless I was comfortable with everybody seeing it. If I wasn't comfortable with everybody seeing it, I won't put it on the internet. And if I have to use the internet to communicate between one party and another party, and I want that information to stay secure, for gosh sakes, I'm going to be using a direct one-on-one -on -one encrypted chat. And once we're done with that conversation, I'm going to leave the chat so there isn't a record of it. So this idea of stories seems like it's a great idea. I can understand why in general messaging platforms would want something like this, I can understand how messaging platforms would want to do this to stay competitive with social networks. I don't think it's a great fit for Signal, but I'd be interested in your thoughts live at asknoahshow.com. What do you think? Are you a Signal user? Have you used, uh, are you using Signal? And if you are, do features like this or the scaling back of SMS, does this take you away from what drew you to Signal in the first place? And does it move you more towards something else? Turkey's in the news this week. Turkey's government recently passed a new law aimed at curbing disinformation. Disinformation they define as citizens who have dubbed censorship law, according to the reports. The new law was met with condemnation from both inside the country and abroad. So I want to start here. Anytime you have to, and I'm using my air finger quotes here, stop the flow of information in an effort to correct misinformation you're losing the battle because the answer to, to I would argue the answer to too much free speech is more free speech. If you have citizens that are saying things that are untrue or acting in bad faith, 
The answer is to explain how the bad actor is acting, why the claim is made in bad faith, and what the correct information is. Rational adults will hear that, they'll think about it, and because rational adults are capable of thinking critically, they'll arrive at the right conclusion if you give them the opportunity to. To me, this is the government of Turkey pushing back on its citizens because they're afraid of what information is going to get out. It has nothing to do with evaluating the veracity of the claim, if it's true or it's false. It's that the government loses control of that speech. That, to me, isn't a good thing. And so the EFF has an absolutely fantastic write-up on this. Troublingly, the vaguely worded law passed in Parliament on October 13th prescribes three years of imprisonment for anyone who publishes false information with the intent to instigate fear, panic, or endanger the country's security, public order, or general health of society. So my question to you is then, what do we do when, an, when, an, when a true claim, a true concern is presented, but that true fear or that true claim presents fear or panic and induces that to people? Does that mean that anytime you question your government, you're being counted as endangering the security of said country? That doesn't seem like a great policy. That doesn't seem like it's going to lead to good things. Turkey's government censors thousands of websites and frequently shows up on social media companies' transparency reports for demanding content removals. The country is among the world's top jailers of journalists. So this really tells us all we need to know about what the motives behind the government in Turkey are doing here. I think what's going to become quickly frustrating to a lot of these countries and a lot of these governments is that the technology is moving faster than their laws can catch up. So you can go ahead and pass your law saying that you, we're going to curb disinformation that citizens have. But you know what? When one citizen decides to sign up for Signal or Matrix or whatever encrypted chat they're going to use, and then they send that information to somebody that's outside of Turkey, good luck stopping that information. And when you start restricting access to the Internet, that's when things like TORs and VPNs are going to come up to try to fight back. So in a, in a pre-Snowden world, I don't know that we had the technology tools to fight this battle. But today, in 2022, I would argue the, the, the landscape is wider than ever to address this. In 2020, at a time when the Internet was more viral than ever before for citizens all over the world, Turkey passed a copycat law, reminiscent of Germany's, Germany's NetZDG that required large social media companies to appoint a local representative and take down offensive content within 48 hours. The law also introduced new powers for the courts to order Internet providers to throttle social media platforms bandwidth by up to 90 percent, which would effectively block access to those sites in the country. So what they're doing here is they're saying we can't keep everybody off of Facebook and off of Twitter and off of Mastodon. So what we can do is make it so that it's so ungodly slow that people go to go, launch the website and go stupid American site doesn't load. This sucks. And then they get bored and then they leave and they go somewhere else. But again, that it's like trying to put a cat. It's like trying to put a uh, you know a, the genie back in a bottle. It isn't going to work. Eventually, people are going to see through that. The first time somebody leaves Turkey and goes over to the U.S. or goes over to the Europe or goes essentially anywhere that has unfettered internet and goes, wait a second, guys, uh, it's way faster here. What's going on at home? Then the gig's up. That's it. You get nothing. Um, so any time. Anytime you have a mandate that the government can, should, will, might take down content, I think we're limiting free speech. And I think now more than ever in human history, there was not a good reason to limit free speech. All of us, if you're listening to the show, are likely geeks, and that means we're technology enthusiasts. Some of us go to work and participate in technology all day long and serve people by exercising our expertise in technology. Other other parts of us, and even some of the ones that do that at work, go home and we play with technology and we explore it. But every single person listening to this program has come across a problem that you just couldn't solve. You came across something, maybe it was a new piece of technology, maybe it was a new piece of hardware, maybe it was something you've just never set up before, and you didn't know how things work. I remember the first time I set up a SIP system, I was just trying to ascertain what part is the server and what part is the phone and 
what part does what. And I couldn't find just a simple guide that would demonstrate to me, here's what's doing what. So I couldn't decide if, well, is this the thing I'm supposed to go to solve this problem or am I supposed to go over here? I felt like I was a fish out of water and I just didn't know what to do. That can be a really intimidating a problematic experience to have. And so we'll ask you live at asknoahshow.com, where do you go either at work or in home when you get stuck exploring new technology and you need a little help? So Steve and I thought we'd take some time and address this because it is something that both of us encounter in our professional lives as well as at home. So Steve, when you're at home working on a project or when you're at work, how do you dig up information quickly? Where do you go as an authoritative source to start when you say, I'm in over my head? Yeah, difficult question. You have to start off by analyzing what what type of information are you looking for? Because there's all kinds of avenues to, to go down. You can do a broad internet search. You can ask people. Um, your company may have a, a knowledge base. There may be wikis out there that are not well indexed or blog post. So ultimately, if it's something where it's a Red Hat product, I normally try two sources. We have a knowledge base for, let's say, common-ish problems that we encounter. And then I may also go and look up customer tickets to see if they have experienced any things because people might file tickets or bug reports where it doesn't necessarily get indexed very well or whatever. And so it really depends on whether I'm working on leading edge or other types of stuff, what do you do? So I kind of have a process for this. I start, I drill from the inside out. So because I own an IT consulting company and employ people to solve problems all day, the very first thing I do is I look at our internal knowledge base. Now, truth be told, a few years ago, I would have told you and probably have said on this show, I've had people that worked at AltaSpeed that have come back and said, hey, can, we, can I get a, can I keep access to your knowledge base because I use it for so many things and I reference it. And I wouldn't rule it out that there's probably a couple little gems in there still that people use. But these days, everything has kind of moved past that. And what we've gone to now is something called runbooks, which, Steve, you actually introduced me to the concept of here's what we do from start to finish to replicate a particular process. And so we started writing these runbooks for every process we have. And so the first thing I'll do is I'll look to see if we have an existing runbook. If we don't have an existing runbook for that problem or that thing that I'm trying to do, then the next Next thing I'll do is I'll reach out to the manufacturer or the software vendor. And sometimes that's an open source project and I'll just ask upstream, hey, how would you handle this? Other times there is a commercial entity behind the product or service that I'm using and I'm able to reach out to them at Escalate and they are willing to help. If that doesn't work, and oftentimes it doesn't, either because the project maintainer of an open source project maybe doesn't have time to spend all day doing support. So they write the project, they get it out there, they're happy to answer general questions, but they just don't have time to do a case-by-case -case scenario. In that scenario, what I'll do is I'll either go to that project's forums, or lately I'll be going into their chat rooms. And if you join their chat room, oftentimes they'll have either an IRC room, a Slack room, a matrix room, a Telegram channel, and you can join those chat rooms and ask your question. And even if somebody from the project isn't there, sometimes you can run into somebody who uses the project and has some experience and an idea of how to fix it. Past that, if that doesn't work, my my final step is I go to the community. So I go to chat rooms that like the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja. I reach out to people like Steve Ovens. I reach out to people like uh, Linux Ninja. Uh, and I'll ask these people, how do you deal with this? How, how would you approach this? Or where can I go for more information? And oftentimes what I'll get, even if it's not the exact, here, here's a step-by-step -step how to do this, Noah. Oftentimes what I'll get is pointed in the right direction and I'm connected with the resource that allows me to get to my answer. So I guess my, my the, the, the follow-up question there, Steve, would be when you're working with upstream projects, and we've absolutely done this, um, are there any things that people need to be aware of when going into a chat room or a forum or contacting, you know, raising an issue on GitLab or GitHub and asking a project to step in and help answer some questions? Are there, are there, any, are there any good, you know, polite tips or being respectful of people's time that people should think about? 
I mean, you want to you want to get your stuff seen. If it's a if it's a busy chat room, that can be challenging. Um, if it's a quiet chat room, that can be even worse because you can just be there bumping your own stuff, and someone may look at that and be like, "That guy's annoying. I'm not even going to bother answering that." Uh, it's it that's a tricky one. It really is. It's it's a difficult thing to navigate relationships with people that you don't know because they're volunteering their time, even if they're part of a company. It's only a small part of their job to be a part of that that little community that's answering questions. So you you have to provide as much information as you can. Like a person that goes in and says, I need help. I turned on this thing and it doesn't work is going to get less response than someone who said, you know, here's the configuration file I tried. I tried this. I also tried this. And, you know, I'm just looking for help trying to figure out how to troubleshoot this in general, as opposed to asking them to solve your specific problem, approaching it with kind of like hat in hand where I'm trying to learn. Can someone please, you know, help me learn how to help myself? You're going to get a better response than asking someone to solve your direct problem. I've unfortunately seen it all too often where somebody will bomb in with this isn't working and that's it. <laughs> they no, no, no further information is given. Just I tried your project. It doesn't work. I, I'll tell you the, the most recent place I've seen this a lot is matrix bridges. And we can have a whole another discussion about why there's a bunch of people saying that bridges don't work. But if you go into a lot of those channels, people will just show up and say, I tried this bridge. It doesn't work. Well, we need more information. How are you running it? Where are you running it? What other things are running? How did you set it up? Did you look at the documentation? If so, what step are you on? Like, there's a lot of information that is necessary to help somebody solve a problem. And oftentimes, as Steve alluded to, you'll have somebody in the room that might have the answer that you're looking for, but because you've, you, because you've phrased and presented the question so obnoxiously, they're not going to take the time to engage you. So the way that I recommend when we hire people and they say, I'm up against a, a brick wall. I don't know what to do. Noah, can you help me? And I look at it and I go, man, I don't know what to do. I have no no more of an idea than you do. Um, you're going to have to go upstream. You're going to have to ask for this. What I suggest is never leave a monkey on someone's desk. And what I mean by that is don't come to somebody just with a problem. Instead, come with a problem and a suggested solution. So for example, you might you might come and say something like I'm having a problem setting up, you know, uh, uh Kubernetes. Let's dig in, let's dig into that for a little bit. I'm having trouble setting up Kubernetes. I want to do it with a vanilla Kubernetes setup. I've tried this. This is what's not working. Here's my troubleshooting steps. This hasn't worked. Here's what I think the problem might be or I don't know what the problem might be because I'm completely lost. Any help would be appreciated. That isn't a specific request to a specific person. It also means that when you have, when somebody comes across that, they have the basic starting information to try to help you solve your problem or at least step through it. You know, the other thing that comes to mind, Steve, is how do we evaluate reliable, reputable sources? Because obviously, up until this point, we've talked about the community. Now, that can certainly be a very powerful thing because the community is wide and vast, but you can also come in to a lot of misinformation by just asking random people on the internet. So how do you evaluate oh, this is a legit source or this is not a legit source? So I guess it depends on how desperate I am to just see a thing working. And what I mean by that is I may try something on a random blog post and see if it gets, if it works. If that works, it gives me a, at least a starting point of some data point I didn't have before. And I will often go and look to see uh, corroborating evidence. Or alternatively, if I felt that it was a little bit janky, it also gives me a, hey, I did this. Maybe there's some alternative to that. Or, you know, it gives you a, a starting point. If I need to be really sure, for example, I'm working in a customer environment, I look for multiple sources that might have similar responses to it. So uh, mm. I might cross off a place that says, hey, here's a bash script, just like, you know, curl pipe to bash. Um, <laughs> that, that, well, we chuckle about that, but you know what? There's a lot of projects, like actual re reputable projects that do that. Oh, and, I know. And that, 
and it's it's unfortunate. But I often write those off and I go looking for the manual steps. I'm like, how do I do this by hand? And if they don't have that information available, I usually walk away. So a good example here is there's a virtual networking called OVN and they have this pipe to bash. But right underneath of it, there's like, and if you really want to do this by hand, here's all the manual steps. And that gives me a lot more um, a lot more confidence in the answers that they have. You know, it's it's kind of a little bit off topic and I, I won't tread on anybody's attention span too long with this, but I this is what has kept me with private Internet access for so long. I've tried other VPN providers. The problem is they all have like this applet or a piece of software or a script you have to run. Listen, if the code's open and it gets out there and it's popular enough and somebody else can look through it, great. If I ever have a few spare thousand dollars that I can have one of our internal developers go through the code, great. Until then, it makes me super uncomfortable to install your random piece of software on your on my laptop. Private Internet Access just gives me the open VPN file I imported into Network Manager and Bob's your uncle, I'm online. So I, I can completely concur with what you're saying from a standpoint of just... If you're copying, pasting stuff off the internet, and oh, by the way, this goes for copying, pasting bash lines as well, you shouldn't be relying on that. You should at least understand what the ninja is doing behind the scenes. How about this, Steve? How about when you're looking for information on a time uh, on a time constraint? You know, there's a difference between you're exploring a piece of technology at your home, and it's not a huge, there isn't a huge time impetus versus a system is down, there's a problem, you need an answer now. How would you go about making the decision or, or is your is your process different depending on how urgently you need the answer? It is because I have a fairly wide network of people that I can chat with, just work friends. And, uh, you know, I don't normally ping Noah, not because I don't think that Noah has a lot to, to give. He probably sees a bunch of stuff that I don't see, but I don't ping him because mm, I don't want to tread on that too much. And I know he'll say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's a personal thing. But if I'm really stuck, I am reaching out to multiple people at the same time to see who's going to uh, who's going to respond to me. And part of that is just being reciprocal. Right. I try to if someone actually reaches out to me directly, that like a person that I know on one of the ways we get a hold of each other, it's probably something that's that's pretty tricky because the because of the circle of friends that I keep. So it's kind of reciprocal. I I will ping them and someone will will at least have some new avenue for me to explore, even if I don't get an answer. And that really goes to the great aspect or the great benefits of networking, right? This is one of the things that I think is the highest value in going to conferences because it allows it puts you in a room with people that are smarter than you are and there's nothing more frustrating than being the smartest person in the room because it's oftentimes you don't get uh, in you don't get any more information you're not going to learn anything if you're not asking questions and so as the Ubuntu Summit is happening right now in in Prague I'm keeping an eye on what's happening over there but the real value isn't in the speakers, isn't in the presentations, isn't in the venue, isn't in the area of the world that it's being held. The real value is the networking opportunity that comes from the people that are attending that conference. If you can't get to conferences, one of the next best ways you can plug yourself into the community is by doing things like listening to podcasts or joining the community. And so we've got chat rooms, so you can join geeklab.ninja, you can write your question in, you can participate in the show, and you'll meet other people that work in the field or experiment in the field. And I I would not write off the home experimenters or the home labs by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's one of the, the one of my primary hiring pools when I'm looking for new techs at AltaSpeed because the people that do it in their spare time have the passion, have the interest in self-motivating themselves to learn something new and teach themselves a new skill. That's far more valuable to me than any sort of you know professional training. And so I would highly encourage you if you don't have a if you don't have a group of people tech nerds that you communicate with on a weekly basis or a monthly basis go join a lug go join a mumble server come join the geek lab come participate in the show but get yourself plugged in get yourself plugged in and meet some of the other people that are there particularly people that have a shared interest they would love to talk with you and they'd love uh, for you to learn more 
as we wind down the show, I want to talk to you about a couple of announcements we have. So the we want you to participate in the program. There's a number of ways you can do that. You can join us live. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Uh, at, at, at asknoahshow.com. You're welcome to write in with your questions at live at asknoahshow.com, but the show largely depends on your participation. So we're asking for a couple of things. So the first is, obviously, if you have any questions, anything that we can help you with technically, write in live at asknoahshow.com. Specifically, though, we're going to be doing a storage roundtable, and I'm going to get Steve and Linux Ninja and some of our guys at Ultaspeed and Patrick uh, from New Spring Church, who has uh, terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of storage servers, and he's syncing them all around the country, doing some amazing things with ZFS and storage. He's worked with 45 drives. He's worked with IX systems. He's built his own server just from scratch and is using them all together. And it's it's an absolutely fascinating way to set it up. But what has been interesting to me, as I ask different people, well, how would you do this? How do you set this up? How do you make this happen? What I'm finding is everybody does storage just a little bit differently. So if you have a storage server that's set up and you're proud of the way you've done it or you've set something up for work and it's worked really well, prefer that solution is open source, of course, but write in to live at asknoahshow.com. Let me know how you set it up and what and, and what you like about it or what you don't like about it. And we'll have that storage roundtable. We'll get all of the people in the same room and, and have that roundtable discussion. Also, I want to make a plug. Uh, we I host a talk show every weekday from 9 a.m. to noon, kanowatchradio.com. So you can go there and uh, you can join me either live for the show uh, every day, 9 to noon, or you can listen to it on repeat as a podcast. So we've started publishing that. It's available at criticalthought.show. And so if you're interested in issues and I try to pick, I, I started by releasing the entire uh, three hours that I was doing and I learned very quickly that three hours of live radio does not translate very well at all to a podcast. And I got into my car and started listening to part of the episode. I'm like, this is terrible. No, I'm not going to do this. So I've backed off a little bit and what I'm doing instead is selecting the portion that I think is most interesting and then releasing that section. So in radio, it's live, and so we talk about the time, we talk about the temperature and stuff like that. And so you might notice that it's a little disjointed, but if you subscribe to the feed, criticalthought.show before, um, if you go look now, you'll see that episodes are starting to trickle out. And once I get all caught up, I'll be at a place where I'll be at a pretty decent release release cycle. So I'd love to have you there. Also, I'll mention as tonight is election night, we'll be hosting election coverage. That happens right after Ask Noah Show. It'll start at 8 p.m. Central. You can learn more about that at KNOXradio.com. We'll run till 11 o'clock, which I think will be like midnight Eastern, at which point I'm fairly certain we will have a pretty good idea of how this year's election results play out. So please join me for that. The music in our ears, it means we're out of time. I appreciate having you. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, if you want to stay up to date, to date on the latest, you follow us on Twitter. He's at Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux, the show at Ask Noah Show. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can listen to us live at asknoahshow.com podcast.asknoahshow.com. That will get you to the podcast dashboard. It has all of the articles and references we use to make the show. So you can go there, check out the references that we talked about. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.